if you were a woman who had a very peculiar life. You really wanted money and were willing to do anything for it. Over time, you start to get worse and worse. You get married a bunch of times, you have children by them, and you just want to be rich and taken care of. And one day, you meet a man who you feel like can give you that. But little do you know, meeting this man will ultimately seal your fate. Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi. Thank you so much for listening and watching. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're so happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water. We missed you, and thank you for coming back to take another deep dive into crime with us. Please check out our episode description. You'll find all the links to my TikTok, my Instagram, a link to help us out over here at Crime Dive, and my special connections and general case request form if you want to see a case covered right here on Crime Dive with Lexi. Today's case case is absolutely insane. Like this case is crazy, which I'm sure you all will have your opinions on by the end of this video. We are going to be talking about the murder of Bonnie Lee Bakley. Like I said, this case is really wild. So buckle up because it's going to get crazy. But with that, let's get right into the case. Bonnie Lee Bakley was born on June 7th, 1956 in Morristown, New Jersey. Her parents' names were Edward and Marjorie. And she was described as being overall a pleasant woman to be around. Around. She was said to be a good person and she was very business oriented. Life was pretty hard for Bonnie and her siblings because her father Edward was actually an alcoholic and because of this she was raised by her grandmother. But it was still hard for her to escape a lot of the strife because she was also bullied in school. Other kids were very very mean to her. Because of this Bonnie really struggled with her identity and it was just hard for her to really love and accept herself internally. She really looked for her identity and love in men, even as young as 10 years old. She was kind of what you would describe as being a lost soul. Now, Bonnie was actually raised near a nudist colony. And when she was 13 years old, her and her sister decided to attend an event there because it was supposed to be a clothes on swimming event. But when they got there, they found out that it was a clothes off swimming event. So they're like, we, we came to the wrong event, oops. But Bonnie ended up going back after a while because she actually really liked those events. But keep in mind, She's only 13. Now, I don't know in the nudist colony if children are allowed to be naked too. I feel like that's just how they live, so there's no age limit. I really, I don't know anything about it. Bonnie continued to go back to this nudist colony at only 13 years old. She would be nude and hanging out with everybody, but some people would even take pictures of an underage Bonnie while she was nude and they would sell them to people, which is very illegal. But Bonnie actually saw this as a new business venture. And it was there that she realized just how lucrative nude pictures were. And because of that, she decided to enter the adult film and picture industry. And she even ran her own business where she would sell nude pictures of other women for money. She would even go on to put ads in swingers magazines in order to get men to send her money. And she would just send them nude pictures, send them intimate letters, anything she could to kind of rope them in and give her money. She would even go up to meet some of these men in person sometimes for money. Bonnie was actually pretty successful with this. She made over $300,000 thousand dollars by doing this to men leading them on getting them to pay her and then they would just never hear from her again 
over time, Bonnie started to go from doing this to a little bit more criminal things. She started committing credit card fraud and she was stealing credit cards. She was forging driver's licenses and had like over 50 different aliases in order to get more credit cards and more money. So Bonnie was out here stealing people's credit cards and using them for money or whatever else she wanted to buy. And she was actually caught. She was charged with fraud in Arkansas and in 1998, she was sentenced to three years probation. But nonetheless, Bonnie pressed on with her various activities. But one activity that Bonnie seemed to really love was getting married. In 1977, when she was only 21 years old, she married her first cousin named Paul Garin. And together they had two kids. Yes, her first cousin. Of course, a lot of people thought this was pretty odd, but according to Paul, Bonnie's family, they were very accepting of very odd things because they were known to do pretty odd things. So they didn't really see it as a big deal. And the way Bonnie was raised, it just wasn't seen as an issue. And nonetheless, Paul said their relationship was actually really good. I'm not sure the exact reason of why it ended, but Paul said that they were like best friends and Bonnie was really supportive of them. But like I said, their relationship ended up not working out. But I think it had a lot to do with the fact that Bonnie really didn't marry for love. She married for money. Around the 80s, she was really dead set on finding a celebrity to have a child with. So that way this person would be obligated to financially support her and the child until the child turned 18. And Bonnie was really, really looking for this. So much so that she actually moved to Memphis in order to get close to Jerry Lee Lewis, who was a famed rock and roll musician. And they actually did end up having a sexual relationship. When she got pregnant, she tried to say the kid was Jerry's, there was a DNA test done, and he ended up not being the father. Now I don't know who was, but Bonnie really wanted Jerry to be the dad because he was famous, he was rich. She knew that if he was the father of her child, she would be set up for life. Bonnie was married a total of 10 times in her life. Some of the men that she married were actually men that she would visit that reached out to her from her swingers magazine ads. And she would marry these men for their money and literally leave them the same exact day. Bonnie did this all for money. She was willing to do anything she could in order to continue being financially supported by these men. And then when she didn't need them anymore or she found somebody else, she would just drop them completely. But when this wasn't working anymore, she decided to go to celebrities. And that was when she started hanging out with Jerry Lee Lewis. She even tried to get close to Dean Martin, who is a famed singer. And at the time, Dean Martin was like 78 years old and Bonnie was not even 40 yet. But Dean Martin ended up passing away on Christmas day of 1995 before she was able to do anything or go anywhere further with him. Bonnie then decided to set her sights on Marlon Brando's son, Christian. And if you don't know who Marlon Brando is, he's the famed actor that stars as the head of the mafia family in none other than the iconic movie, The Godfather. He's the guy who's like on the movie poster. He has like, the things in his mouth that makes his mouth look puffy, but I actually found out it was a custom mouthpiece made by a dentist, by the way. Marlon Brando was huge. He was a very famous actor, mostly because of The Godfather. So when she starts dating his son, she's like, well, this is my ticket into a very rich and wealthy family. But at the time they met, Christian was serving a 10 year prison sentence for manslaughter after murdering his sister's boyfriend after she told Christian that her boyfriend was physically assaulting her. That was pretty interesting, but Bonnie was like, I don't care about any of that. His dad's rich, they have money, so that's my main priority. And she was dating him, writing him in prison, and once he got released, they began a relationship. 
because he only ended up serving five years of his sentence. In 1999, while Bonnie was still seeing Christian Brando, he had been released from prison by this point, she met famous actor Robert Blake at a jazz club, I believe in California. He was a famous actor from back in the 60s and 70s, and he was mostly known for his role in the 1967 film In Cold Blood that actually had a book based on it with the same name by Truman Capote. And I actually had to read that book in school and we had to watch the movie as well. He was also known for starring in his breakout role in the 1970s TV show Beretta, where he plays gritty detective Tony Beretta. But unfortunately his career kind of faltered because he became pretty difficult to work with. He was said to be drinking a lot and he would even get physical with producers and directors. So people really didn't want to work with him anymore. By the time he had met Bonnie, his career was pretty much non-existent. He was about 66 years old. He was kind of at a crossroads in his life. His children were grown. He had enough money to last him a lifetime, but he just didn't really know what to do with his time. So he's at this jazz club. He meets Bonnie. He sees her and he's like, yeah, you know, she's cute. She's pretty. But once they started talking, he said that there were really no fireworks. There wasn't any chemistry, but he figured she was attractive, so he decided to have sex with her that night. But he had no intentions on actually seeing or meeting up with Bonnie again. Little did he know that Bonnie was not going anywhere. She ended up writing Robert a letter to let him know that the pill did not work and that she was pregnant. But this was no accident like Bonnie tried to portray it. She had been trying to get pregnant, so much so that she was using ovulation test strips to see when the right time to actually have sex in order to get pregnant would be. She ended up getting pregnant and she didn't know if it was either Christian's baby or Robert's baby. They were both rich, they were either famous or came from a famous family. So at that point it was kind of just up for chance. I mean, whoever was the dad was who she was gonna go with. But Robert was not happy at all. He did not want to have a baby with Bonnie. He wasn't in love with her. He didn't feel like there was anything there with them. He didn't really know her. He didn't trust her. So he really didn't want anything to do with her at all. And he even urged her to get an abortion. And Bonnie actually recorded a phone call between the two of them where Robert was encouraging her to get an abortion, going so far as by saying, you agreed to do it. Why aren't you doing it? You're such a liar. God's gonna look down on you. I mean, Robert was pissed. Literally getting pregnant is wrong. Writing letters to me is about that you're gonna get an abortion, you promised me, you said I'll take pills, I'll get an abortion, all I want to do is be with you no matter what happens. What are you saying? That you don't even want me to get in touch with you unless I get an abortion? Is that what you're no. saying? Ward, you promised me. You promised me. You said don't worry Robert, no matter what, I will have an abortion. You never have to worry about me getting pregnant. I'll take the pills, I'll have an abortion. It's okay, relax. Yourself, I care about you. And it's all a lie. Not a little lie. That's a big lie. That's the kind of lie that God looks down and says, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's a big, awful, vicious lie. Bonnie never had any intentions on getting an abortion. I'm sure she just told him that to kind of humor him, but Bonnie wanted to have a child with a famous person. So that baby was not going anywhere. In the meantime, Christian, I'm assuming was not as upset because him and Bonnie were actually in a relationship. And on June 2nd of 2000, Bonnie gave birth to a baby girl and named her Christian Shannon Brando after Marlon Brando's son and her current boyfriend, Christian Brando, but she didn't know whose baby it actually was yet. But she just named the baby after Christian because that's who she was in a relationship with. So she was just like, I'm just gonna go with that until proven otherwise. But after a DNA test, 
it was found that Robert Blake was in fact the father of the child. So her name was quickly changed to Rose Lenore Sophia Blake and she was nicknamed Rosie. So Bonnie literally named this child after Christian just because he was her boyfriend, not knowing whether or not he was actually the father. And once they found out that he wasn't, she had to change the baby's name. And Robert actually named the child. Now, even though he didn't want the child to begin with, when he met Rosie for the first time, he knew that she was his kid, even before the DNA test. He said he just felt a connection with her pretty much immediately. And it was right then and there that he actually named the baby. And he fell in love with Rosie. That was his baby girl. That was his daughter and he loved her. It was Bonnie that he wasn't too crazy about. And keep in mind, they're like 20 years apart in age. Robert was 66 and Bonnie was 43. But Bonnie did not care about that at all. She just wanted a rich, famous celebrity to father her child. And that's exactly what she got. But Robert did not want to be with Bonnie at all. But he also didn't want Bonnie around their daughter, Rosie, majority of the time because he didn't not trust her. He knew what Bonnie did on the low. He knew that she had a business that she was running called the Lonely Hearts Club, which is where men would buy nude pictures from women and she would continue to mislead them, mishandle their money. Bonnie pissed a lot of people off. Robert wasn't too keen on her being around their daughter a majority of the time because he didn't want Rosie to turn out just like her. So Robert ends up marrying Bonnie, even though he's not in love with her. He doesn't want to be with her at all. He doesn't trust her. It almost sounds like he kind of despises her, but he did not want her to have majority of the influence over their daughter. And he knew the best way to be around her all the time was to just marry her mother. But their marriage was not normal at all. They didn't function like a normal, happy married couple. Together they lived on Robert's ranch called Matahari Ranch, but Robert lived in the main house in the front and Bonnie lived in a bunkhouse in the back, which is where Rosie was majority of the time. They were not even living in the same house at all. They were living in two different houses on Robert's property. Like I said, they were not a functioning married couple whatsoever. This was simply an arrangement for Rosie's sake, but all of that would soon come crashing down. On the night of May 4th, 2001, Bonnie and Robert were out to dinner at one of Robert's favorite restaurants named Vitello's in Studio City, California. When I say this is Robert's favorite restaurant, it was his favorite restaurant. I mean, he had been going there for about 10 to 15 years and there was even a dish named after him because he was so close with the owner. And they were just there having dinner and eventually they left a little before 9.30 p.m. And they walked back to their car in 1991 black Dodge Stealth that was parked about a block and a half away from the restaurant. Restaurant. But once they get to the car and actually get inside, Robert realizes that he forgot his firearm at the table. So he leaves Bonnie in the car who's sitting in the passenger seat and goes back to the restaurant in order to retrieve it before coming back to the car. But it was when he got back to the car that he found Bonnie was unconscious and bleeding from her head. And immediately he assumed that she had been beaten up and he was terrified. So Robert decides to run to a bunch of houses, knock on the doors. Nobody answered for the first house. So he goes to another house and he bangs on the door of the home of a man named Sean Stanek. And Sean opens the door and he immediately recognizes Robert Blake as being a famous actor. And he's like, oh my gosh, what are you doing here? And he's like, call 911, call 911, it's my wife, my wife, she's bleeding. So Sean goes back in the house, gets the house phone, because remember it's the early 2000s. There's not a lot of cell phones at the time. It was house phones. He goes to the house phone, calls 911 and tells them what's going on. Hi, I'm at and a woman uh, was beat up and um, there's a, a gentleman uh, by the name of Mr. Blake who's got his, his wife in the car right now. 
While they're on the phone, Robert ends up going back to the restaurant and hoping to find some help to see if anybody can assist him with Bonnie. And Sean actually goes to the car to help Bonnie. And he finds her bleeding, she's unconscious, and she's slumped over the center console. Sean tries to prop her up a little bit to get her to breathe and see if she's breathing. And he finds that Bonnie was actually gurgling a lot and she was covered in blood. There was a lot of blood at this crime scene. Eventually, Robert comes back to the car with a nurse that he found dining in Vitello's that could hopefully come and help him. And the nurse goes to the car, she looks, she sees that Bonnie's bleeding, but it was there as the nurse was assessing Bonnie that she found out that she'd actually been shot twice, once in the right cheek and once in the shoulder. Now, while Sean and the nurse are over there helping Bonnie, they realize that Robert is kind of just hanging out away from the car. He wasn't actually touching her, which was very odd. I mean, they were like, why aren't you over here helping or doing what you can? He was just standing in front of the car watching them help her. Around 9.45 p.m., paramedics arrive on the scene and they immediately start working on Bonnie and trying to get her stable enough to take her to the hospital. And during that time, Robert was sitting on the curb, absolutely hysterical. And Sean actually goes over to him to help him out, make sure he's okay and comfort him. But he notices that the whole time Robert's making all this noise and making all these faces, he doesn't see any actual tears coming out of his eyes. It kind of just seems like he's making noise and faces and that's pretty much it. And all Robert keeps saying is, I knew this was gonna happen. So police decide to come talk to Robert to figure out what happened, what's going on. And Robert says, you know, I have a firearm and I actually carry it in order to protect Bonnie from stuff like this happening. As I said, Robert knew about Bonnie's past and that was a big reason of why he didn't want her around their daughter all the time. He was scared that something was gonna happen to Bonnie because of the life that she led. So he carried his firearm around because at the end of the day, he didn't want anything to happen to the mother of his child, even though he wasn't too crazy about her. He also said that there were some threats that had been put on Bonnie's life by people that she had worked for previously in the adult film industry. So Robert was just trying to protect her, which is why he had the firearm in the first place. Paramedics took Bonnie to St. Joseph's Medical Center in Burbank, California, where they tried to work on her as much as possible. But unfortunately, she didn't even make it to the operating table. At 10.15 p.m., Bonnie Lee Bickley was pronounced dead at the age of 44 years old. And all I could think about when I read this was her baby. Rosie wasn't even a year old yet, and now her mother is gone. And Bonnie had other children too, that now have no mother. I mean, despite Bonnie's checkered past, she was still a mother. So for her to be gone was just tragic in general, especially for her children and her family. Police decided to take Robert to the police station to speak to him and get a formal statement about what happened that night because he appears to be the main witness. Robert agreed to give an interview, but he refused to give a polygraph test, which is within his right. But you gotta wonder, you know, why don't you wanna give a polygraph test? It's a little bit odd. It's a little odd. They then test Robert's clothes for blood, which turned out negative, and they also tested his hands for gunshot residue. And they ended up finding five particles in total on his hands. But when you fired a gun, there's usually about thousands of particles that can be found on your hands. Maybe he didn't fire a weapon tonight, but keep in mind, they didn't test Robert for gunshot residue for another two hours after Bonnie was killed. And he had gone to the bathroom a few times when he was sitting down in the grass, hysterical. He was kind of rubbing his hands around a little bit on the ground. So it's possible that a lot of the residue came 
off from the time Bonnie was killed to the time he was actually tested. But there was just no way of knowing at that specific point in time. But eventually they let Robert go and they just sent him on his way. The following day on May 5th, police decided to search a commercial dumpster that was actually sitting right in front of where Bonnie and Robert's car was parked the night she was killed. They ended up making a huge discovery. They found a weapon, a firearm, in the dumpster. And they found a nine millimeter firearm called a Walter P-38, an old World War II soldier's firearm. The serial number had been scraped off and there was still one bullet left inside. And it was a nine millimeter bullet that matched the bullets that were found inside of Bonnie as well as the shell casings at the scene. So police were pretty much like, well, this is the murder weapon because there's just no way that it's not. It means right in front of where Bonnie was killed, the bullets match, I mean, this is the murder weapon. There was also a little bit of oil found on the firearm and police wondered if somebody put this there in order to cover up any fingerprints because there was actually no oil found in the dumpster. So where did it come from? Not to mention this weapon was so old that it was virtually untraceable. So it's possible that this person used this firearm so that way nobody could trace it back to them. Police decided to test the firearm to see how much gunshot residue it let off after two shots, which is how many times Bonnie was shot. And they wanted to see if it was consistent with the amount of gunshot residue that was found on Robert's hands. But turns out after only firing one shot, the Walter P-38 firearm actually let off over a thousand particles of gunshot residue. Keep in mind, Robert washed his hands a few times, he rubbed it around in some grass, so it's possible that the gunshot residue just left his hands. Gunshot residue is known to pretty much blow off your hands like dust, and he wasn't tested for another two hours. So it doesn't rule out that Robert was the shooter. It doesn't directly prove it, but it really doesn't rule it out either. But police just thought it was odd in general that the firearm was even found still at the scene because who wouldn't take that with them? Who would dump it in a dumpster right in front of the car that they shot the person in. Most of the time you would just take that with you, right? So police were wondering, well, the only way that somebody would dump a murder weapon right at the crime scene would be if that person had to get rid of it immediately. The only person they could think of that would have to get rid of that weapon immediately was Robert because Robert was about to be with police, questioned by police, and how bad would it look if he was found with a firearm on him that matched the bullets in Bonnie's body. So he had to get rid of it right away. Police decided to recreate the crime scene to see if it was possible that Robert could have shot Bonnie without getting any blood on him because remember, there was no blood found on his clothes. And after recreating the crime scene, they concluded that it was possible that Robert could shoot Bonnie without getting blood on him. Given the angle that Bonnie was shot and the angle at which she fell over the center console, the blood spatter would not have gone to the outside of the door. The blood spatter didn't even make it to the passenger door, which is where Bonnie was sitting. So if the blood didn't even reach the door, there's no way it's gonna reach somebody who's outside of the door. It was possible that the killer could have gotten no blood on them at all. The same day the weapon was found, police obtained a search warrant to search Matahari Ranch, where Bonnie and Robert were living in two separate homes. And what they found was pretty interesting. They found $12,000 in a drawer in Robert's home. They found nine millimeter weapons and they found a 100 count box of nine millimeter bullets, which was the same caliber of weapon and bullets that were found to have killed Bonnie. But get this, there were only 97 bullets left. There were three missing and there were three bullets found at the crime scene. Two were used to shoot Bonnie and one was still left in the firearm, the Walter P-38 that was found in the dumpster. So what the hell are the odds that there were three bullets missing and there were three bullets found at the crime scene. 
Now, police ended up testing the bullets and finding the ones that, th that were found at the scene were factory loaded and the ones that were in Robert's house were hand loaded. Now, I'm not really sure of the difference. I'm by no means an expert on firearms at all, but that's very, that's like such a huge coincidence. And at this point, police are really starting to zero in on Robert. I mean, they just know that something is very off about him. He was their top suspect because they knew that he and Bonnie's relationship was pretty contentious. He didn't like the fact that she didn't get the abortion like he asked. He didn't want her around their daughter because he just didn't trust her at all. So police wondered, maybe he got rid of Bonnie to make it easier on him raising Rosie so he wouldn't have to deal with her anymore because he was just over her. He felt like she brought a lot of danger and drama and strife to their lives. So maybe he just got rid of her. But police also wondered, there were other people out there who may have wanted to get rid of Bonnie too. Like I said, she moved pretty shysty back in the day. She would mislead men, she would marry them for their money, she tried to have kids by them, and then she would just leave them high and dry after taking their money. So there were a lot of people out there that Bonnie possibly pissed off, but there was no evidence to really substantiate any of these claims. There were no threatening letters or mail found at all. Maybe Bonnie could have thrown it away or maybe they weren't sent out. I mean, there was just nothing really substantial to confirm that Bonnie was being threatened other than Robert saying that she was threatened. Now, police actually got a call from a former stuntman during their investigation that actually used to work with Robert during his acting days. And this man said that Robert called him at around November of 2000, six months before Bonnie was killed, asking for the numbers of two other stuntmen that he wanted to solicit for murder. These two stuntmen were named Gary McClarty and Ronald Duffy Hamilton. So police got in touch with them and wanted to speak with them and figure out why Robert contacted them and what was said. And according to these two stuntmen, they said that Robert met up with them at a deli in Studio City, California, which is actually verified by a receipt, and he asked them if they could kill Bonnie. Then at the request of the stuntmen, Robert purchased a prepaid calling card from a nearby 7-Eleven that he would use to contact them on because it was pretty much untraceable. And there's a confirmed receipt of this prepaid calling card that was found in Robert's apartment. Not to mention he used his home phone to call them and he only used that prepaid card to speak to these two stuntmen, nobody else. And this is backed by cell phone records and receipts, which looks extremely sketchy. And police felt like they had enough to arrest Robert. And on April 18th, 2002, almost a year after Bonnie Lee Bakley was killed, Robert Blake was arrested and charged for one count of murder and lying in wait, two counts of solicitation of murder, and one count of murder conspiracy. Robert's bodyguard, Earl Caldwell, was also arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder after police searched his Jeep and they found a very sketchy shopping list in his glove box. It had some very interesting items on it, such as duct tape, two shovels, a crowbar, a blank firearm, and lye, which is used to decompose a body. They also searched his home and found a firearm very similar to the one used to kill Bonnie, but they ended up finding out that Earl actually wasn't in the area at the time that Bonnie was killed. He was in San Mateo, California, which is about five hours away. Now, I was unsure how much Robert had told him or how much he knew, but Earl was known to do pretty much anything Robert wanted him to. So people didn't feel like it was that far off that either he was involved or he knew something about it and just kept his mouth shut. 
The trial began in December of 2004 and Robert pled not guilty to all charges. The prosecution really wanted to poke holes in his story and pretty much say that Robert was lying about everything he did, including going back to the restaurant in order to retrieve the firearm that he had left at the table. According to the busboy that cleaned Robert and Bonnie's booth that they always sat in, there was nothing found at the table. He didn't see a firearm at all. The waitress didn't either. And not to mention, nobody remembers even seeing Robert come back into Vitello's in order to get this firearm. And he would have been pretty noticeable. Not only was he a famous actor, but he came in there all the time. He was a regular customer. Like I said, he even had a dish named after him. And if somebody comes back into a restaurant that just left, you're gonna look at them and be like, oh, is everything okay? Oh, what happened? And maybe you would have been like, oh, I just gotta grab something real quick. I used to work in a restaurant and I was always scared to get in trouble because my boss was a little eh. So I know if somebody had walked back in after just leaving, I would have noticed them immediately and been like, oh no, what did I do? Or like, what's wrong? So the fact that nobody noticed Robert walk in when he was literally a regular customer and had just left, the prosecution thought this was weird and they questioned if he ever went back in that restaurant at all. They also thought it was weird that Robert carried that firearm to protect Bonnie, but when he went back to go get it, he left her in a parked car in the dark by herself with her window down. I mean, if he wanted to go back and get his firearm, don't you think it would have made sense for him to just merely drive back to the restaurant, park in front of it across the street, run back in and get it and go back out? Why would you walk all the way there just to walk all the way back? That doesn't make any sense. It was almost like he wanted to keep the car as far away from anybody as possible. The prosecution also tried to point out the fact that it was pretty much impossible for Robert to have paid for his meal, gone to the car, walked back to the restaurant, seen Bonnie was hurt, knocked on all those doors and had that person call 911 within a 17 minute window because his credit card was swiped at 923, but 911 was called at 940. And they just felt like it was pretty much impossible for Robert to have done all of this within 17 minutes. Prosecutor Marsha Clark, who gained a lot of notoriety as being the lead prosecutor in the O.J. Simpson trial, actually tested this theory and found that it was possible that he could do this in 17 minutes. Now this didn't necessarily rule him out as the killer, but it did make it possible that he did all of this in 17 minutes. But we really don't know what he did because nobody ever saw him go into the restaurant. So I feel like there's like a good five to 10 minutes that are kind of unaccounted for. The stuntmen also testified and they gave their statements about how Robert pretty much solicited them for murder in order to kill Bonnie, but they ended up declining and they told the whole story about the prepaid calling card, the deli meetup. The defense used the gunshot residue testing in order to determine that Robert was not the killer, saying that the amount of particles that were produced from this firearm after one shot was not consistent with what was found on Robert. But of course the prosecution brought up, it's very easy to get rid of gunshot residue. He wasn't tested for another two hours after the fact, so it's possible that a lot of it was already gone. They also tried to ruin the credibility of the stuntmen, saying that they were on substances at the time and it could have been hallucinating the fact that Robert tried to solicit them for murder. But you have to remember, there's receipts that back all of this up. There's receipts that back up the deli lunch. There's receipts that back up the prepaid calling card. And the fact that those two men were the only people that Robert used the calling card for. And this is also backed up by phone records. I don't know how they could be hallucinating when there's definitive proof that he was in contact with them around the time that they said. 
They also posed the theory that Bonnie defrauded so many people and she probably pissed somebody off to the point where they wanted to take her life. And then they brought up Bonnie's very checkered past and how she would steal from people. She was just a bit of a con artist. And they also brought up Christian Brando saying that maybe he was really upset at Bonnie for leading him on to think that her child was his when in fact, she wasn't. Bonnie actually recorded a call between her and Christian where he ended up saying, you're lucky somebody's not out there to put a bullet in your head. And the defense tried to argue that this sounds like a direct threat on Bonnie's life from Christian. But it was confirmed that Christian was in Washington state at the time of Bonnie's death. He was nowhere in California whatsoever. So he was eventually ruled out. The trial ended on March 16th, 2005. And after nine days of deliberation, the jury found Robert Blake not guilty on all charges. We, the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Robert Blake, not guilty of the crime of first degree murder of Bonnie Lee Bakley and violation of penal code section 187 subsection A as charged in count one of the information. And I was very shocked by that. But the jury really didn't believe the testimony of the two stuntmen and they felt like they were kind of just trying to get attention and that there was really no validity to any of their claims, which I don't really know how they would have benefited from this kind of attention, but okay, because nothing ever really came of it after the fact. But in a civil trial, Robert was found to be liable for Bonnie's death and he was ordered to pay her family $30 million in damages. He and Bonnie's daughter, Rosie, was adopted by Robert's older daughter from a previous relationship, as well as her husband. And he went years without seeing Rosie, which was pretty interesting in my opinion. At the age of 19 years old, Rosie actually sat down for an interview with Good Morning America in 2019 to tell her side of the story and what she knew. And I actually found out that me and Rosie are the same age, but she was born like two months before me. I felt a bit like there were two parts of me. One of them is, you know, trying to kind of recover from what happened when I was young and trying to sort through the complicated family that I have. And then one of them is just a normal teenage girl. And she actually reached out to Robert the same year she gave the interview. And that was the first time that they had spoken in years. Robert never really made any attempts to reach out to her whatsoever. He also really didn't have a relationship with his older children. So he pretty much wasn't speaking to any of his kids at all. But Rosie decided to reach out to him and they just shared memories and had a good time. But Rosie made it clear that she did not want to talk about her mother's death. She said that if Robert did it, she doesn't even want to know. Did you ever ask about what happened the night that your mother was murdered? No. And I specifically asked him not to tell me. So if your father truly murdered your mother, you don't want to know? I don't want to know. You, you don't want any resolution to that? Not right now. Not right now. I don't right think now. I'm ready, you yeah. know? It's, and that, that sounds crazy. I feel like mm -hmm. anyone would want to know the answer. I think I've gone 19 years not knowing if all of a sudden I knew whether or not he killed her, that would be shocking. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty interesting. I feel like that takes a lot of strength to be able to build a bond with somebody knowing there's a possibility they could have killed your mother. But she just wasn't worried about that at the time. She just wanted to connect with her father, even though she didn't call him dad or really consider him dad because he didn't raise her. On March 9th, 2023, Robert Blake passed away at the age of 89 from heart disease. And he maintained his innocence for the rest of his life that he had nothing to do with Bonnie's death.
To this day, we still don't know who killed Bonnie Lee Bakley because in the eyes of the law, Robert is innocent. But a lot of people believe that he got away with murder. But I wanna know what you guys think. Do you think that Robert Blake got away with murdering Bonnie or hiring someone to do it? Let me know in the comments. It's a pretty crazy case and it's really tragic. Despite Bonnie's life that she led, although it was a little bit seedy, she did not deserve to die. She was a mother and she was a person and her life mattered. And the fact that whoever did this either got away with it or is just still roaming the streets is pretty heartbreaking. But with that, we're gonna go ahead and wrap up today's episode. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you so much for listening and watching and I hope to see you in the water soon.